going to jump back in to the book of Revelation. And uh, so we've spent a few weeks in there before Easter, and uh, Easter uh, was an amazing Sunday, and uh, so we, we really focused on that week and Holy Week and what all went down on, um, on that week and Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And, um, but we spent a couple weeks in the book of Revelation before that, and, um, and so I'm going to just pick up where we left off. So the book of Revelation is, 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 a, is an intimidating book. <laughs> I have to be completely honest with you. Um, I've never really preached a message out of the book. Um, it's one of those books that I think has been taken from us largely by bad teaching. You know, so there is someone will, or when I was exposed to the book, it would, it went something like, um, you know, a, someone would come in town and they would have a big map and um, they would try to explain what everything meant, all the symbolism. And if you, if you read the, the book of Revelation, we gave out um, these little uh, bookmarks that have uh, one week, like a one week plan where you could read through the whole books about 20, 21, 22 chapters. And, and you could see it's broken up into three main parts. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is kind of what had happened in the past and what was currently happening in the world with the church at that time. And so our last sermon, we looked at the seven churches. And so chapter 3 and chapter 2 was written to um, seven distinct churches um, that right now would would be kind of um, like Southeast Asia, modern-day Turkey, and that letter would be circulated around. And so chapter 4 through the rest of the book, kind of shifts into the future. And so the Revelation, it's kind of amazing where you, you have a, a past, present, future lens to look through this book. And what's even more you know, special about the book, I believe, is it's not in, written in order. So we would, you know, it's, it'd be nice to read, you know, pick up at chapter 4 and know, okay, that's year 300 B.C. or, or 300 A.D. or whatever. And, and then, you know, chapter 5 is, is, so it's not written that way. It's almost like going to a museum and you walk into a room and it takes you back to uh, 1000 B.C. And then you walk into another room and it's 600 A.D. And, and so this book, uh, it's not written in order. It jumps around quite a bit, uh, talking about future tense things. And so today, chapter 4, is uh, another vision that John receives. So John is the, the same John that we read about. It, he wrote a gospel. He wrote other books in the New Testament. Um, he was very close to Jesus. And at the end of his life, what's cool about John is he was many different things. John was a pastor. John was a poet. A lot of his writings in the book of Revelation is very poetic. There's a lot of symbolism in there. There's a lot of poetry in that book. But he's also a prophet now. So here he is at the very end of his life. He's in his late 80s. He's pastored. He's walked with Jesus. He's written you know, his gospel. And now he's getting this last download from God. And, and, and so that's pretty, to me, pretty incredible. Just number one, to know that 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 God may use you to do multiple things in your life. You know, for, for 10, 20, 30 years, you might do one thing, but God might shift gears on you and say, I want you to do this now. And so uh, chapter 4 is another grand vision that, that John receives. Chapter 1 was a vision of Christ. This is a different vision. And we're going to read it together. You may have already read it, but it's a, it's a vision of the throne room of God. 
It's a vision of if, if we could peel back the heavens right now and see where God, what, what is it like, you know, what does is, what is God do on the weekends, right? Uh, what, what does his, his study look like? You know, where, does he, where is he at? What does that even mean? And, and, um, and so he has a vision of the throne room of heaven. Now, I don't believe this is a future vision, and this is why, because uh, if you want to write this down, Ezekiel 1, verses 4 through 28, Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14, uh, both of those prophets had a vision of the throne room of heaven, and it looked exactly like the one we are about to read. But it was thousands of years before John received his. So I believe this is a real place that exists right now. And when we jump into this, one thing I, I kind of wanted to put out there is, is there any movie lovers? Anybody like to watch? Everybody watches Netflix now. And, and so you, you've got these movies that people are really drawn to, and they have a similar thread. Right? Like Stranger Things. Anybody watch Stranger Things? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of it. But, uh, and, and then you have like Harry Potter and then you have The Matrix. I think out of those three, everyone in here has probably seen one of them. But, but there's a common thread in these movies that we're drawn to. I mean, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, The Lord of the Rings. Like there's, all, there's, there's, these, these, they, there's science fiction, but there's a common theme in all of them. That there's a world that we cannot see that influences the world that we can see. In Stranger Things, it's the upside down, right? In The Matrix, it's, I don't remember what they call it, but it, it was this hidden world that, that to, the, to, the, to you know, the physical eye, you don't see it, but it influences everything that we do see. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. As we go in, and we're going to read, it's only 11 verses, so we're going to read chapter 4. I want you to, to really see like, if we could peel back the heavens right now and see what worship looks like in the throne room of God, this is what it looks like. And it lets me know that when we sing songs together, when we come together on Sunday, there's a whole lot more happening than what we realize. And so I'm not an eschatologist. I haven't studied the book of Revelation, but I have read a lot of authors and, and, and theologians that have studied this book and made it their life work. And, and the best quote I think I've found before we read this is, is from a pastor named Alester Begg. And he said, well, when you read the book of Revelation, remember this, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Okay? So the, the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So we can read this book and try to interpret every single little symbol that, that's there, and I think you can get lost that way. So we're looking for the main thing. What rises to the top? So Revelation 4, let's, um, let's read it together. And you'll probably notice verse 20, the last word that G, that, that's given to the church was, I stand at the door and knock, the church of Laodicea. This was a very wealthy church. They had kind of drifted. And the last words that's given to them is, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you let me in, I'll come in. And then we pick up here in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had, fir I heard, I had first heard speaking, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'm going to show you what may, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven. Underline that word throne. If, you, if you're writing, underline that word, highlight it in your phone. Every time that word throne is used, you should circle that. There was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
And he's one who sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold in their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there it is again, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second an ox, the third had like the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. So all you hunters in here, if you ran across that in the woods, what would you do? Do you talk to it? Do you try to shoot it? I, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So we got this creature here, y'all, all right? And it's got a, the face of a, of a man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. It was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come, past, present, and future. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All right, so that's a lot, a lot there. So the first thing I, I, I want you to see as we jump into this is if we keep the plain things, the main things, and the main things, the plain things. That word throne, it's mentioned 14 times in that one verse. Or, I'm sorry, that one chapter, 53 times in the whole book. And so I know there's a lot happening. There's creatures, there's a sea of glass, there's 24 elders, there's, but but I, what I want you to see, number one, is that they all have one thing in common. They're all faced and focused around that throne. So that word throne, it, it, it's an interesting word. It means the seat of divine power. So it's the top of the totem pole, right? CEO, CFO, right? We've got all these titles, but usually the one that, that, that's, that's in charge is at the top. His office is in the corner, and he's overseeing everything. The two other visions that the, prophet, the, the prophets I share with you, Daniel and Ezekiel, had, both of their visions of, of this same place that we just read about, again, at the center of their vision was the throne. Wasn't really focused on around it, wasn't really focused on the creatures that were there, but they were all bowed down to that one throne. The other thing I want you to see is it, is it represents all of reality, all of what we see. There was animals there. There's a sea of glass, nature. The 24 elders, like there's a lot of speculation who they were. Could have been the, you know, 12 tribes. Of, there was 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles. But these were the leaders of the church, you know, possibly of that day. But again, I want you to see that they're all centered around the throne. And so this is just, I think, a grand revelation that there is a God in heaven. 
and that he's in control. And one of the greatest revelations that we receive when we read this book is, is, is it shouldn't cause fear. I think I don't, it shouldn't cause chaos. I think if we look at the world, we see fear and chaos. We look at the world and people don't have answers. They don't know what to do about climate change. They don't know what to do about Russia. They don't know what to do about everything happening in our world. And that has always existed. But in this place, I want you to see there's order. There's harmony. Everything has a place. Everything is in its place. No one's confused. No one's running around wondering what they're going to do and what tomorrow's going to hold. No, no, no. The center of everything that's happening in that moment was the throne. And so this is a picture, I think. This is an image of heavenly worship. Of, of if we could peel back and see what's going on in heaven, that there's elders, there's these creatures, there's all of nature is pointing to one person on the throne. So I want to give you just three quick things that I feel like we can draw out of this chapter. No, number one is that worship centers on God. In fact, a lot of times we can, we can take worship and kind of flip it around. You know, um, there... I, I, I haven't been in church my whole life. I got in church a little later, about like my senior year in high school, but I, I was raised Catholic. And one of the things I noticed when I started going to church, there were certain songs I liked, right? There's certain songs you don't like. I think everybody has a preference. But the worship songs, I really believe that God shows up and moves and ministers are not songs about what I can get from God, but they're songs about God. In worship, basically, it's, it's two words, worth and ship. And it's wherever you ascribe worth to. So wherever you put value, wherever your time, talent, treasure, and energy, and emotions, and attention goes, it's what you worship. And sometimes songs, even songs that we write in the church, can be about what I can get from God, or God helping me, or God fixing me, and, and he will do all that stuff. But real, true worship, if, if this is the, the core, if this is what, as good as it can get, right? If, if this is the, the blueprint for worship, nobody's talking about them. It's centered on one person. So worship, is, it's centered on God. And what begins to happen, I think, when we do that is our reality changes. Now, so we believe that God is omnipresent. We believe that God is everywhere at all times. That's a fancy word for that God is everywhere. If we go up onto the, the top of a, the, the Rocky Mountains, God is there. If we drill a hole down 10,000 feet, get in a submarine and go 10,000 leagues under the sea, guess what? God is there. If a man steps foot or a woman on Mars, guess who's going to be there, right? If they can get out as far as they can, but we believe God's everywhere at all times. But we don't always see him and feel him and sense him. So if God is everywhere at all times, then why, don't, why can't I just walk out back and have a talk with God, you know, and, and get things in order? Because I, I think that there's a difference between God's presence and God's manifest presence. Where God reveals himself and, and, and he shows himself real in this reality that we're in right now. And we see this in, in a simple form. Of just We're all breathing oxygen in this room. We're all breathing air, but you can't see it unless you change the atmosphere. If you get the temperature low enough, if it gets under, right? If you get the temperature low enough, you can see 
And I think what worship does is it sets the atmosphere for us to be able to see and sense God. And that's why for thousands of years, I, I mean, I, it's, it's pretty amazing to me that I haven't really been in many church services where the, the preaching came before the worship. It starts with worship. Why? Because it centers ourselves on God. It centers our attention on God. It's, we, can, we forget about the fight we had with our wife on the way here, right? Like we knocked the kids out in the back seat, you know, about kicked them out. You know, it's like all hell breaks loose on Sunday morning. Have you noticed that? The dog runs away, you're sick, you burn your Pop-Tarts. You know, it's like World War III getting here. But once you get here and get in the room and you start singing, your, your worship, your, your, your focus changes, and you're not thinking about the burnt Pop-Tart or the dog that ran away that may not make it to heaven and the kids that were fighting, you know, <laughs> that were fighting. You know, you're not, you're not, you're like, okay, we're, we're here. Because real, real worship, if we're doing it, I think the, the way God wants us to do it is it's not like a, you know, sugar daddy, I'm going to pull this chain, I'm going to sing, and maybe God will give me a few more zeros in my bank account. Like, I, I, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's God, thank you for waking me up this morning. It's God, thank you, I'm not at Baptist Hospital with a machine helping me breathe right now. It's God, thank you for putting breath in my lungs. Thank you for the sunshine. It's, it's focusing, but even deeper than that. Not so much on what God can do, but who God is. Thank you for being a faithful provider. Thank you for being constant and steady in a world that's just shifting around like shifting sand every day. Just chaos. Thank you for being some order in my life, God. Because no matter what's going on when I get home or Monday morning or this week, this is the time where we come to center ourselves on God. And this is what happens when we center our focus. I think worship is just, I think it's a matter of attention. I've seen, you know, I was raised Catholic. So I did the whole, you know, down, up, down, up, cross. You know, like you were told when to sit. You were told when to get up. We sang different songs. We did the, the, the mark of the, of, the, of, the, of the cross. Like there was different ways that they worshiped. And then I ended up, you know, in a, in a charismatic church my senior year. And they worshiped a little different. Okay. <laughs> All right. Like, like, like for real. Like I, I, would, I would just sit and spectate. I did that for about a year. I mean, the pastor, would, he would run the back of the pews. It was amazing. I mean, he would get so excited. And people would, I mean, it's just, it was amazing. I heard a story about these two hound dogs. They were on the front porch, and they were across from a Pentecostal church. And every Sunday morning, that church would start up, and there would be people. They'd, they'd hear them in there shouting and singing, and they'd be out front in front of the church if they got real excited, and they were Jericho marching around the church. Anybody ever done a Jericho march? You ain't lived till you done a Jericho march, all right? Look that up, baby. Jericho march. The next house you bid on, you need to go Jericho march at first, okay? These two hound dogs are watching this go on every Sunday, and Finally, one on the hound dog looks up at the other hound dog and says, you know, if we acted like that, they'd worm us. <laughs> Doesn't matter how you express it. I think the heart of worship is your attention. And some people meditate and they sing hymns. And some people go through the, you know, they, it's, it's a different type of worship. But at the center of it all is our focus. It's on God. 
And what that does for our lives, it centers our lives. Because this is what I think we do. I know I do. We build a lot of little thrones in our life. And, and, we, we, you know, and it could be a, a business. It could be just a mindset that, that I'm in control of what's going on. And this is my domain. And then life has a way of reminding us that we're not in control at all. And what happens when we really worship and we put our attention and focus on God, it centers our lives. It kind of resets our lives back to where we need to be. Because if we don't have a center, this is what happens. We get pulled in every single direction, whatever's the loudest, whatever's flashy, right? whatever, whatever, like whatever has our attention. We get pulled in a million different ways when we don't have a center. And I want you to see this, this incredible vision, y'all. There's, there's, there's this sea of glass. There's 24 elders. There's these animals. But the very, very core of what's happening in this, in this picture, this vision, is they're all coming and they're, they're focused and they're centering their lives on God. The elders put their, crown, their, their crowns down at the feet of that throne. They're basically saying, I know we sit on a throne, but there's a throne that's above mine. And when we hit things in our lives that we, don't, can't, we can't control and we don't understand, one of the greatest things that we can do is worship. When we face circumstances in our life that we don't know what the next step is or we don't know what we should do, one of the greatest ways we can center our lives and stay on that, that path towards God and with God is worship. Edmund Clowney, theologian, he, he said it like this. I... I said, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived all over the place. We worship so that we will live in response to and from this center. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, and every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move either frightened and panicked, deluded, lethargic in turn, alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no sinner, there is no circumference. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like your life was just, I mean, you're just getting pulled all over the place? I know you have. Worship brings us to this focal center where we can finally figure out what we're here to do, what God is doing, where we're heading, and it brings some peace and relief in a world that's chaotic that's not going to stop. So it centers us. I think the second thing that worship does when we begin to worship, Psalm 22 was known as the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 23, very popular psalm. But Psalm 22 was a, a revelation that David received of, of Jesus on the cross. What he was feeling, thinking, praying while he was there. And it talks about this, that, that there's this one line in Psalm 22 that says, God inhabits the praises of his people. And what happens, I really believe, is when we come together and we worship and we're singing these songs, there's some things that are taught, but there's some things that are caught. 
And, we, and when we really need an answer from God and we really need God to, to show up in our lives, I mean, we, can, I, I, we need to read our Bible, we need to learn, but there's some things I think that we can only get when we worship. And one of them is this, is, is as we begin to worship, it enlarges, it broadens our image of God. Because problems like to take the place of God in our life. They want to take that seat. That diagnosis is all I can think about right now. I can't get away from it. I lost my job. What am I going to do? This person walked out on me. I thought we had a future together. And problems have a way of magnifying themselves so large in our lives that it's all we can think about. But what worship does is it quiets that voice down. And it almost forces us to put our attention on God when we realize that there's so much about his goodness and his faithfulness that we didn't see. Because problems have a way of trying to usurp their authority, of trying to make it seem like there's no way of getting out of this. But worship reveals to us that God always has a plan. Come on, somebody. And that God is faithful. And it's easy to worship when everything's going good. It's easy to worship when you got plenty of money in the bank and everything's well and you're healthy and all things are going your way. But it's really hard to worship when you've got some heavy stuff that you're carrying. And I want to encourage you that when we engage, when you engage in worship, it begins to grow this vision of God in your life to where you know that these problems, they may not go away, but they don't have a place of authority or influence in your mind. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I, can't, I just can't shut it off, Pastor. At night, I can't stop thinking about it. Doctor says it's anxiety. I don't know. I just can't fall asleep. I'm just thinking about it. And then I put on Fox News or CNN, and it's like if some, one guy can hit a button and, and completely change our world. And it's a lot. Worship doesn't take care of the problem. The problem may not go away, but what it begins to do is grow our vision of God. It reminds us of where we're heading. It reminds us that God is faithful. And I think that that's probably my main job. <laughs> is if I do my job well, you're going to leave here feeling encouraged. You're going to leave here knowing that you have a God who's able to do abundantly above all that you can ask or think. You're going to leave here knowing that God has got your back, that if everybody walks out on you, you got a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're going to leave here knowing that if, the, if your bank account's at zero, that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he can cash one of those in at any moment and take care of you. That's what I hope you feel when you leave. Not fear, not anxiety. And when we read this book, y'all, the book of Revelation, it's a scary book if we don't keep that at the center. That God is able. He has a plan. He knows the end from the beginning. He's already written it. And we're living kind of in the last few, I think, moments of this of the dispensation of grace. And it's an incredible time to be alive. Not a time to hide. Not a time to be up at night worried about problems that, guess what, aren't going to matter. <laughs> Maybe in a month or two, but they're, they're really not going to matter in eternity. David said it like this, Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The problem, 
the problem begins to zoom out. And we don't see it as much when we zoom in on God. And I think what it does in a lot of times is it gives God the opportunity to work. Because we tend to try to fix things on our own and we hurry and we, and we strive. And God's saying, no, 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 I haven't called you to strive. I've called you to trust. I've called you to trust me. And when things don't go the way that you want them to go, and when problems hit your, your desk that you don't know how to fix, one of the greatest things you can do in that moment is say, you know what? I'm going to worship God. That just makes the devil mad, y'all, okay? If you can worship God in the valley, like if you can worship God when you're going through it, when everything in you wants to just say, you know what? God, forsake me. God left me. God he didn't come through. I mean, that's, that's the voice of the enemy. If you can walk through season like, seasons like that and say, no, 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 I'm going to train myself. I'm going to tell this body to worship. Paul said it like this, I bring this body into subjection. And a lot of times you don't feel like worshiping. It's not something like I don't wake up at 3 a.m. and feel like going and, and just doing worship jumping jacks in the living room. Like, I, I don't do it. I'm grabbing, I'm doing lines of Oreos at 3 a.m. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you may not just, if you're waiting on your body to, to tell you to worship, it's probably not going to happen. It's, some, it's, a, it's a decision that you have to make. It's a decision that you have to make. I want to enlarge my view of God. I know there's so much of God that I haven't seen. I know that heaven may just be an eternal revelation of how good that God is. Right now we see in a glass dimly, Paul said. We can barely see. We see just little specks. But worship reassures us that we came from somewhere and we're going back there. Worship takes the promises of God and turns them into prophecies. When you, can, when you can worship and say, God is for me, who can be against me, and you're going through something and there are people against you, if you can worship the promises of God, they may just turn into reality for you. When we begin to, it's just, man, I, and I think it has very little to do with this one hour that we have here on Sundays. Because everybody, you know, worship's different. I think if we all stuck our finger in a light socket right now, some would cry. Don't do that. Some would shout. Some might would run. Some might fall out. But it demands your attention. And when we read about this revelation that John had of the throne room of God, everyone's centered, everyone's focused on him. There's one last thing. I want you to see before we pray, and I'm going to have the team come back up so y'all think I'm really closing. I want to read the last verse to you there. So they're worshiping. And in the last, verse 11, last, last verse of chapter 4, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and you sustain all things. Right? You, you, they have their being in you. And so from this moment of worship, there comes a revelation at the end. 
Chapter 5, if, if you've read the book already, if you haven't, chapter 5 talks about opening a scroll. And a scroll was basically, in, in, in that time, they would write down really important things on scrolls and roll them up. We have books now, they use scrolls. But it signifies that something's about to be revealed that you need to see, that you need to hear. But it comes on the heels of worship. John, the revelator, what was he doing on the Isle of Patmos? It says it was the Lord's day. He was worshiping. And from that time, out of, out of chapter 1 where he's worshiping, we're now reading the second vision that he had of God. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, they're known as Psalms of Ascent. And so if you've ever been to Israel or Jerusalem, and some of you I know have, it's set up on a hill. So it's, it's kind of a city on a hill, literally, surrounded by mountains. It's amazing. I've never been, <laughs> but I've talked to people that have been. And in that day, on these Psalms of Ascent, so three times a year, they would go to, to Jerusalem to worship for the festivals. And so as they would be walking that or journeying up to Jerusalem, they would they would sing these songs on their way to the house of God. They're known as songs, psalms of ascent. So they were singing these as they were heading up the mountain to be with God. And in Psalm 122 is the psalm of worship. So this is a psalm all about worship. So imagine the family is together. They're heading to, they're heading to church. And this is what they're listening to in the car or on the radio on the way there. When they said, let's go to the house of God, my heart leaped for joy. And now we're here, oh Jerusalem, inside Jerusalem's walls. Jerusalem's a well-built city built as a place for worship. The city to which the tribes ascend, all God's tribes go up to worship to give thanks to the name of God. That's what it means to be Israel. Well, why do they do that? Because there's thrones for righteous judgment are set there. Famous David thrones. Now, what does that mean? This is the last thing I want you to see. They knew something that I think maybe we forget sometimes. That through this act of worship, through this ascending, as they're heading to Israel, they knew that they were going to hear from God. And when we take, think about thrones of judgment, I think we, you know, maybe you think about Judge Judy or something, you know what I mean? And, and, and judge, they, they give out judgments about things. Well, let me tell you about you. This is what you did, and this is what you're going to serve. But that's not what that word means. That, that, that word judgment literally means the decisive word by which God straightens things out and put things right. So the judgments of God are not about things. The judgments of God do things. It activates love. The judgment of God activates peace in our life. The judgment of God is active, and it's what we need. It's what you need to lead the life that you lead. In the company that you lead, in the family that you lead, it's what you need to know which school to apply to, what to pursue, so many questions, open-ended roads. What do I do? Well, I, I can tell you this, that worship reveals God's plan and purpose in our lives. And they knew that. 
And that's why they would sing these songs and they would celebrate the judgments of God. And what that was is basically they knew when we ascend this hill, when we really engage in worship, I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to know what I need to know. I'm going to get that judgment that I need. I'm going to get that, that, that decree that I need because I've got things going on in my life and I don't know which way to go. But I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that's why I think this is so, so critical. And that's why I think the world kind of went crazy when we shut the church down for a few months. Because there's more than songs being sang in this room when we come together. It's more than just lifting your hands or clapping or, or reciting a, a verse. This is when you begin to worship, when you really begin to engage, and, and it may just be you, you sing, you may clap, you may lift your hands, but when your attention is put on God in that moment, there's a whole lot more happening than what we see. And I think what this book reminds us of in Revelation 4 is that there's so much more happening when you worship. And if we could just see it for a moment, and we will, worship gets the attention of heaven. It activates heaven on earth. Worship is something I don't know if we can be a Christian and not do it. It's the one thing where you can't spectate. And I did for a long time. Again, it was a Pentecostal church, y'all, right? So there's a lot of running, a lot of shouting, a lot of speaking in tongues, a lot of stuff. I didn't know what was going on. But it was real. And it was how men and women that I respect and admire led their lives. Because it takes all the little thrones down. This is the last thing I'm going to say. What worship does is it removes our ego, because we all have one, and it puts God at the center. And it says, you know what, Lord, not my will. You know, if I get the deal, if I don't, you're good. If it works out the way I want it to work out, guess what? It's okay. You're still on the throne. <laughs> you still got a plan. You're in, you're in control. You're in charge. Lord, just let me get in behind your lead, because that's where I want to be. And it takes all the pressure off because, I mean, life is just heavy. And it can feel like we're carrying this thing. <laughs> it can feel like it depends on you, Dad or Mom. It can feel like that you're, you're, you've got all this weight of the world on your shoulder. And I hope for just one hour every now and then or a few minutes on Sunday, you can set that stuff down and say, no, there's a God who reigns. And he is seated on the throne. He ain't nervous. He's sitting down, y'all. And he's just watching this thing take place. And he's going to take care of every need you have. And every family member and every person and everything that the devil tries to make big and idolize in our lives. God says, nope, don't worry about that. Center yourselves on the throne. Watch the throne. Center yourself on me. Not all these little bitty thrones in your life, but that one true king. Let's do this. Let's bow your heads. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, God. We thank you that we believe that when we worship, that you show up. That when we really begin to worship, when we come together like we do, that you're here with us.
and you're speaking, you're moving, you're bringing strength to people that feel weak and weary, even right now. You're giving peace. You're just a peace that the world can't give and a peace that the world cannot take away. God, we just thank you. And right now, just every head bow, every eye closed. I, I just, just in your own heart, in your mind, and just, just can you think about for a moment the goodness of God? I want you to think about how good he's been. I want you to think about what's been the loudest voice in your mind over the last couple of weeks and months. Has something been trying to take the throne, his place in your life? Could be an addiction. You just can't get away from it. Could be stress. Could be anxiety. It could be a million different things. But just for a few minutes, I want you to focus your full attention on the goodness of God. How faithful. How amazing that the God of the universe would send his son down here. To give his life for me and you. Last time I checked, nobody was in line to give their life for me. But there was one who did for you. And so, Lord, we think about Jesus in this moment right now. We fix our attention on him. We know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. We know that he is high and lifted up. God, we just thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Everybody said amen.